That's me. Yeah. We, did a, we did a mic check this time, and it's still wrong, so I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Maybe it's time for me to retire or something. I don't know. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, <laughs> does anybody know? I'll let everybody settle down. Okay. Does anybody know what the Latin phrase e pluribus unum means? Yeah, I heard it over here. No, let me ask you this. You know what it's associated with? What we associate it with? What? Coins. Yeah. That's, it's, it's, so here's the thing. It was our national motto for, for a long time. Since the origin of our nation up until the 1950s, then we changed it to in God we trust. But e pluribus unum is printed on every, on every coin that we mint. And it means, as others have said over here, if you didn't hear it, out of the many, one. And originally it was referring to the diverse, you know, American colonies joining together as a singular nation in, in, their, in their strategy to, to separate from British rule or mon- monarchical rule. Throughout our nation's history, it actually has been used as a motto for the incorporation of diverse people into American society. But I would say that long before the U.S. ever adopted that as a motto, the Apostle Paul would have said, that's a great motto for the church. Uh, you know, in our country, it could be argued that e pluribus unum, I couldn't remember, e pluribus unum uh, is just a motto. <laughs> the real practice is seen in our polarization. We're very largely divided into special interest groups who advance their own specific causes. And sadly, the same could be said of the church. After all of these years, still, that doesn't change the challenge that scripture gives us to be in real life, one church out of many diverse people groups. And that's what we're going to be considering today as we pick back up in our study of Ephesians. And if you've got a Bible with you, we're probably fighting each other. Okay, sorry. Uh, If you've got a Bible with you, uh, if you'll go to Ephesians chapter four, please. Uh, Last week, we read all of chapter 3, where Paul made his theological argument for unity within the church, how there's no more distinction anymore between Jewish people and non-Jewish people, Gentile people. We're all together. All people groups are united in God's love for humanity. Now, as Paul begins chapter 4, he's going to begin exploring what it can look like In real life, if we, as the church, were to live like what he said in chapters 1 through 3 were true, God has delivered us from being controlled by that something in the air, the unseen spiritual forces opposing God. And if God has reconciled us to himself so that we can all be one people unified in Christ's love, then what does that look like in real life? as we interact with each other, as we live this out. And that's what chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians focuses on. But for Paul, even his practical advice is filled with metaphor and imagery that we're going to have to unpack here. So it's going to take some Holy uh, Spirit-guided imaginative thinking on our part as we work our way through what it is that he's talking about here. The main thrust... And what Paul's going to be talking about is a challenge for us to live in harmony with what we claim we believe about God. 
and his purposes and his activity through Christ in not only our hearts but in this world. And, and if we believe these things, then how does that affect our lives? Well, what should our lives look like? So if you're there in Ephesians 4, this is what Paul is going to be talking about. It begins with uh, verse 1 in chapter 4. Therefore, now quickly, whenever we see therefore in the text, we have to stop and ask what it's therefore we have to ask what why so this word means when he, whenever it begins with therefore the word means in light of everything i've just been saying and so in other words in light of everything i've said in chapters one through three uh, you know with, that we've been freed from the powers of the air reconciled to god united in christ with all who trust him in light of that i a prisoner for serving the lord beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you've been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves, to, to, uh, to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. Binding yourselves together with peace. For there's one body. And one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God, Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. Okay, so Paul is telling us that uh, a whole new way of life has opened up to us because of Jesus. There's a whole new way in which God has called us to live in light of the good news of what Jesus has come and done and how that affects us and this world. And it's really important to note that the character traits that Paul implores us to to cultivate are all expressed in community. We talked about that last week, how, you know, these things just don't happen in isolation. And again, we did talk about this last week, but, but the theme from last week flows directly into this. So we'll be kind of covering that uh, as well from the standpoint of unity. And again, if you underline things in your Bible, look at the words that Paul uses to describe the ideal Christian behavior or the ideal way in which Christ is embodied in our behavior because of all that he's talked about that Jesus has done for us. Chapters one through three, here's what it should look like then as we live. Humble and gentle and patient. And the word uh, oftentimes in, in translations is forbearing, but it means to make allowances for others' shortcomings. NLT just kind of spells it out for us. Love and being united in, in peace. All of these only have expression in the context of community, of, of being with other people. And really, I mean, all of life is relational. I mean, unless we're off on a deserted island somewhere and, you know, uh, but even there, <laughs> there's ways in which we're going to be interacting with people even in our heads or whatever. But still, nobody's truly independent of, of other people. We've, we've all got to interact to some degree. Christianity is relational from beginning to end. It begins with, with our relationship with God being being restored and redeemed and then that has an effect that that touches all of our other relationships everybody else that we interact with so what paul is driving at i believe is this that the gospel is lived out through a loving and unifying interaction with others 
Christianity put into real life practice, Paul says, is humble and gentle and patient and loving. And it's a lifestyle, a lifestyle that strives. And this is an interesting way of putting all this, strives for unity and peace. Like if we're going to wrestle, if we're going to fight for something, we're going to fight and wrestle for peace, for unity among one another. And it's sort of amazing to me as I sit and reflect on these things, how the church throughout our history has placed so little value on unity. When Paul challenges us to make every effort to keep ourselves united there in verse 3, and he makes the point in in verses 4 to 6 that there is only one source of life for, for this life that we've embraced. There's only one source of that life. There's one body, meaning there is one active presence of Christ through the church at large. So in other words, there's not a Baptist body. There's not a Lutheran body. There's not an Eastgate body. No, there is one body and Baptists and Lutherans and Eastgate all have a part in that. We all play our part. We all participate in that one body. But that's, but that's the concept that he's presenting. And he lists off like seven aspects of our one source of life. And it's actually really reminiscent of the Hebrew Shema uh, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Lord is one God. That's a, you know, that's a daily prayer within the Jewish uh, heritage. Well, this has been called Paul's Messianic Shema. And he, he elaborates it out to seven. And of course, seven in a biblical context, uh, comes through from Hebrew thought, seven being the number of completion. It's complete. It's total. So this is the complete oneness of God from which we draw our life. Eastgate may be very different from a, a Lutheran church, but our source of life is exactly the same. We all draw from the exact same source of life. In Utah, there's a forest grove called uh, Pando. And it's fascinating because the aspen trees there uh, all share a a singular root system. Uh, 47,000 trees that on the surface look different, like they're all just a big forest of trees, but each one of them is tapped into the same life root, the same root ball, you could say. And you can Google this. This is fascinating stuff to me. But each tree is distinct in its appearance. You can look at the photo there. They're not all the exact same size based on how much sun and rain it receives. Some are tall. Some are shorter. But none of them could exist without tapping into that singular root system that they have. And it's a wonderful analogy for what Paul is driving at. We may look very different on the surface from one another, but we all draw from the same source of life. We all draw our life, our sense of reality, our sense of wholeness and purpose comes from Christ. I realize, you know, right away you got to qualify things. Rob, what if, you know, what if there's a church who has mixed in other things besides Jesus and that source of life? What if they're teaching that Jesus isn't central, that something else is central and Jesus is peripheral? Well, I mean, obviously, that's where we've got to use the Holy Spirit's discernment as we go through life. And we remember our unity is in the Spirit or in Christ. So I could see it, you know, just just to, to satisfy the qualification here. I could see it as possible, but rare, 
that we would need to disengage with someone or other group only if they've marginalized Jesus and are encouraging us to do so. I could see that that would be a possibility, but I would also say that would be very rare. That should not be something that would be a regular occurrence, even though the church that I grew up in and the church experience that I've had, it's a regular occurrence that goes on. As the church, we have a long history of focusing on the distinctives that differentiate us. But here Paul, 2,000 years ago, challenged us to change that focus to the most important thing, the source of our shared life. There's one thing that's really important in all this, and it's Jesus, and it's what he's done and how he's at work in, in us. If we share Jesus in common, that is enough. That's enough. Okay, well, you can think about that. Moving on, verse 7. However, and so, okay, so whenever you see the word however, he's qualifying what he just said. So, you know, however, you know, I, I just said we're all unified, we're all only one, but he has given each one, so there all of a sudden we see a differentiation, each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That's why the scriptures say when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives, he gave gifts to his people. And notice he says he ascended. This certainly means that Christ also descended into our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Well, that doesn't need any commentary, so we can just move on uh, from there. Uh, So here's the thing. Paul is assuming a familiarity with Scripture that we may not have. Uh, So he quotes a passage from the Old Testament without identifying it, figuring that we would either know what it is or take the time to go look it up. His main point is made in verse 7. That is that he's given each one of us, uh, that's uh, in verse 7. He's given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. But then verses 8 through 10 are sort of him backing up his point, trying to, to give a scriptural support for it. But it actually makes it a little more puzzling, uh, at least for modern readers. Uh, here's the thing. He's trying to get across his qualifier here uh, about, about sharing one life. And, and, and so he's reminding us. I believe that he's reminding us that unification is not uniformity. God still distinctly enables each of us for service, for ministry. And, of course, that's going to apply to whole church communities as well. So, you know, unity doesn't mean that we're all going to look the same, we're all going to act the same, we're all going to have the same necessarily giftings or even, or you know, the way we focus our, our love for Christ is going to you know, be different from church to church, from individual to individual. And so to expound on that, he quotes Psalm 68. Um, but there's a glitch in the quotation. So, I mean, you're probably not going to have time to go there and read it right now. So we'll do it together here. We're not actually going to read the whole thing because it's a really long psalm. But look, look at, so Psalm 68, this is what he's quoting, and this is what it says. When you ascended to the heights, you led a crowd of captives. You received gifts from people. Okay. Uh, and th- so this is how Paul quotes it. When he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Do you see a difference in these two things? What is it? What's the difference? Yeah, giving and receiving. He changed it. He, he, he actually changed that last line so that God gives the, gives the gifts instead of receives the gifts. Now, the Bible teacher in me recoils at this. I'm immediately like, he can't do that. Can he do that? Can we do that? Is that a thing? I wouldn't do it. 
But Paul and the other New Testament writers seem to be comfortable with doing that. They, they actually do this more than once. Oftentimes, it's an issue, I would say, of, of combining quotes from different sources, but attributing them to one source. Like in the opening of Mark's gospel, he says, as it says in the prophet Isaiah, and then he goes on to quote Exodus and Malachi, and with just a little bit of Isaiah in there. But in his thinking, it's all the same. It's all connected. It's all part of the same thought that's coming through on this. It's part of a singular, singular concept. So when we come across something like Paul has done here, where he's kind of switched it up, um, sorry, uh, where he switches it up, it means that we, it alerts us that we need to go back through and, and read uh, more of what was in this to see if we can get behind what Paul was thinking in that. Now, it's a long psalm. We're limited on time. So if I were to summarize it, it's a psalm that envisions God as leading a victory parade into, we'd say, Jerusalem or to his holy mountain. In the ancient world, if a king would go out to battle and he would win in battle, when he would return home, all the people from the city would come out and meet him, and they would all then go together as one big parade back into the city celebrating the victory. And that's what's envisioned here in this psalm. Uh, uh, all the, all the, you know, all the soldiers were coming back from battle. All the ones that were taken captive, prisoners of war, things like that, would be coming with the kings, bringing everybody back in together. All going to join together to be one kingdom uh, again. And this psalm is poetically imagining God doing this, and it uses imagery from the Exodus, from Egypt, and Israel's later enemies. And so it's a sort of a sweeping vista of God's ultimate victory for his people. But in the middle of the psalm, there's an interlude where the psalmist exalts. I don't know what I've got there. That's the wrong thing. Yeah, there it is. I don't know what that was about. Uh, Okay. Uh, the, The psalmist exalts. Our God is a God who saves. He rescues us from death. The Lord saves or God saves. That's what Jesus's name means. The, the name, Yeshua, it's God, yeah, it's part of Yahweh. The Lord saves. And right after it, it says he will crush the head of his enemies. And I don't know if that's a hyperlink in your mind. It should be, but there should be a hyperlink right away. Anybody know anything about crushing the head? There it is, exactly. In, in, in the, the Genesis chapter 3, speaking to the serpent, He's telling him he's going to, the one who's going to come and deliver mankind from the fall that they, they fell into was going to come and crush the head of evil, the representation of evil uh, in the serpent. So for Paul, he's reading this psalm and it's just, uh, you know, it's a victory song describing the great victory Jesus would provide when he descended to earth and overcame death. And the very last line of the psalm Verse 35, God is awesome in his sanctuary. (laughs) I don't know what I've done here. I've I've messed up the entire slideshow. It says in there, God is awesome in his sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. So it's the last line. That's where he got it. He inserted the very last verse from Psalm 68 into his quotation. God gives gifts of power and strength to his people. He combined it all. Do you see how that worked? So he's not just making stuff up as he goes. He's actually connecting the entire thing into what Jesus did. 
What's strange is all of that was just in support of the idea that each of us gets a distinct gift. So it's, it's kind of a, a, a circuitous way of going about making his point. I think it might have landed better in the ancient world than it does in ours. But either way, the idea is though we share a singular life source, how that life manifests in us will be distinct and maybe even unique to, to each of us as individuals. And those aren't those distinctions that we, we see represented in, in how each of us is experiencing this life of salvation or as church communities express and experience it. Those aren't, those aren't distinctions to be wary of. Those aren't differences to divide over. Even though we seem to do it all the time, they're to be celebrated because all of it is meant to enable us to rightly reveal God's goodness in this world. All of that is this this vast array of ways in which God now is revealing himself, fills up all the universe, as he said earlier. I mean, you know, back to the Pando Grove. If, If some of the trees decided they didn't like the shape of the other trees that were there and they didn't want to be near them anymore, we're not going to associate with these trees. Well, how would they do that? The only way they could do that would cut themselves off from the root and divide away. And what would that do to them? And that's the idea that Paul is trying to get across. We can't be dividing up over these things. We're not going to be experiencing the life God intends for us if we keep dividing up and isolating away from these other expressions of his life. Unity is not uniformity. God expects us to leave lots of room for variety. And he enables each of us distinctly as we represent his life into this world. Okay, moving on, verse 11. Now, these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church. Apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors, and the teachers. Okay, quickly here, this is so interesting. Some, I want you to contemplate. We're probably very familiar with this passage of Scripture. We read it, you know, it comes up a lot if you've done any Bible study or any study on the church itself. But it's so interesting to me that some of the gifts that God gives to the church, according to Paul, are people. And he describes the various ministries that provide leadership and guidance. What we don't necessarily automatically catch in this is that it's a subversion of the Greco-Roman systems of honor and status. It's actually true of our world as well. We follow suit with that. But those who lead the church are not elevated on the basis of worth or status or honor. No, every ability, according to Paul in this, to lead is given as a gift and not as an honor for the leader, but as a gift to the community. It's a reversal of of what the Greco-Roman world had. Leadership in the church isn't something that results in the honor and status for the one leading. It's a gift that results in service and the honoring, service to and the honoring of the community, it's upside down from the way the world system usually actually works. And it's not a hierarchy. God doesn't do hierarchies. In fact, what Paul gives us is not a list of titles, even though we've turned them into titles. But these are lists of service. They're job descriptions that he's laying out here. So apostles. Now, in the early, in the early text, in the early church, they were people who saw the risen Jesus, but the the Later on, as the epistles unfold, we realize that expanded to include those who initiated 
church planting and oversee that sort of thing. You know, we're involved in that sort of thing. Prophets in New Testament theology are those who discern God's will or purposes for specific people or for communities, people who can sometimes apply scripture in a way that is very meaningful and potent for a particular situation in, a present, in the present tense. Evangelists are those who are enabled to effectively share the good news of Jesus and his desire to reconcile with the human race. And man, I've certainly known people like that who just have this knack, this gift, you'd have to say, of being able to effectively talk about this and people respond to it. And then pastor literally means shepherd, those who guide the spiritual growth of a community, look after its needs. And teachers are those who are enabled to read the scriptures and explain them and help people apply these kinds of truths. They're job descriptions. Everything here is a job description. It's a list, but it's a list of job descriptions, not titles of honor. Any more than you would say plumber is a title of honor. Now, if you're a plumber, you might think, well, I feel pretty honored to be. Well, you should, and that's good. But you don't go around saying, hey, there's plumber Joe. Uh, You say, hey, there's Joe. Uh, he's a plumber. The same should be applicable to these kinds of things. You wouldn't walk around and say, there's Pastor Rob. No. You'd say, there's Rob. He functions as a pastor. This is a job description. It's not a title of honor that's supposed to elevate somebody, uh, an individual. And listen, all of these things that he lists here could have uh, individual expressions within a church body. You know, you know, we get the terminology fivefold ministry. I believe it expands beyond that. Basically, we put all the other, you know, descriptions that Paul puts together in other books and other letters. It could have, you know, five different expressions through five various people, or God could combine this, whatever God wants to do. It could be one person functioning in several different things. The point, though, is that it's service. It's not seeking honor or hierarchical power, which Unfortunately, the church has struggled long, long to, to get that concept. But, um, you know, it's, it's not about the elevation of individuals affording them power over people. That's never what it was supposed to be about. You know what? I have ground this axe probably to a nub by this point in my life. I should just shut up and we'll move on. Uh, verse 12. So, he gives all these job descriptions, and here's the purpose for it. He gets here to chapter 12, or verse 12. The purpose for these servants, their responsibility, it says two, it should be 12. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith. That's, that's an amazing statement right there. So like, this is the goal, Right? Like this is all happening, we're gathering here like this, why? Well, first on the list, according to Paul, is till we get to the place where we have such unity in, in, in the faith and knowledge of God's Son that we'll be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we'll no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever, they sound like the truth. Instead, we'll speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. 
And that's where we'll stop today. Of course, you know, uh, the various service positions in the church are meant to, to equip the community to advance the good news out in our world. That's why we talk about Sunday mornings, you know, the, Sunday mornings is our practice field. This is where we get together and, and try to practice all of these truths and practice them in, in this environment where the ideal is that it's loving and we make allowances for each other and, and we learn how to do this so that then the real ministry takes place when we go out into the world and we do the stuff. We live these principles out in the world where we've been placed. These ministries are also meant to guide us into a knowledge of Jesus so that we become mature and no longer shallow, infantile believers who get caught up in every fad that comes down the pike, uh, you know, that happens. So we can discern when someone isn't speaking or guiding us in the ways of Jesus, even though it sounds logical or, or right. And all of it is intended to fit us together, unified and healthy and growing and full of love. That is Paul's picture of a healthy expression of church. And I think his point is that Christ then is revealed through the church when we join our diverse gifts together in unity. This is how Jesus gets revealed into the world, gets revealed. You know, when we join together as the church community, we present a more complete picture of who Jesus is. Because here's the thing, and I've said this before many times, we don't do this Christian thing very well. I don't do it very well. Uh, you know, uh, I have strengths in some areas, but I'm weak in other areas. And I take comfort in the reality that I know that's true for you, too. <laughs> By myself, I can never fully show off who Jesus is because of my weaknesses. But in community... I may be strong in this area, but you may be weak there. So my strength is able to cover over your weaknesses. And you may be strong in that area, but that's where I'm weak. And so your strength covers over my weakness in, in all of these things. And if we love each other in Christ, and as he said back in verse 2, make allowance for each other's faults, we can join together and form a more accurate picture of who jesus is to this world joining together covering over the weaknesses and allowing god's grace to be manifest in the way that we're relating to each other creates a picture of christ that the world can see that's why it's so important then also that no one member becomes the entire representation of the church whether that's the pastor or any individual it's only together it's only as we join together as a community, a whole community, that we find this picture of Christ. Individuals off by themselves are not going to be able to do that, not be able to represent him rightly. And I, I think of it like a mosaic. Like when we gather together, each of us has our own little colored tile, maybe unique to us. Maybe several of us have one color or another have another color and we come together we join together like we do on this. We interact with each other. We pray together. We worship together. We dive into God's word. We interact with each other. And we all keep doing that week after week, month after month, placing our little tile, the gift that God has given each of us to share. Whatever it is, it may be something small like just a friendly look 
as somebody comes in who needs a friendly look, or it may be something more noticeable, like an inspired word of comfort from God to a specific person for direction or whatever. But we come in and we keep placing our tiles guided by the Holy Spirit, and each tile takes its place. And when we step back, we see that it forms this picture of Jesus, of who he is and what he's like. That's the idea that Paul has in mind. That, in his thinking, is the picture of a healthy church. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we attain to that? Because I'm telling you, we got, <laughs> we got 2,000 years of history of the church not doing this. How do we overcome that? I mean, that's a juggernaut of movement going in a certain direction. There are ideas and, 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 and orthopraxis, the way we behave, that, that we're, we're so conditioned with. How do we move past that? How do we ever get to what it is that he's describing here? I'm asking you because I don't know. I'm not just saying these are the things that we're called to do. This is the life that we're called to embrace. This is what the church is supposed to look like. And so I guess that's the challenge for us all. That, to take up the challenge to unite with each other and love one another. I guess it's as simple as that, right? Love one another. And, and how, can it, how can it go wrong if we do that? Let's not allow the things that divide this world all the various ways in which we divide up from each other and polarize and advance our own special interest, not allow those things to be the things that divide us who are united under the same root, who tap into that same singular life. Let's draw together. Let's, let's bring our gift to the community whatever that may be. And man, that's something maybe to spend some time praying about. What, what can you use me to do, Lord? How can I be part of this community that, that represents the reality of your love? And we don't have to think big. We can think small. Help me, Lord, in every interaction that I have, even as I'm just walking in, help me to represent your grace and your kindness. And let's show the world as we draw together a savior and a better world to come. Let's live as though that world were here already so we can show what it's like to the world who so desperately needs it. Right on? All right, very cool. If you'll stand with me, please. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, sometimes it, it, it takes a bit for us to get in there and, and extract what it is that you've said. This was meditation literature, Lord, meant for us to chew on for a while. And so we've been chewing on this. But Father, I just pray. It just, it's, it's overwhelming to me, the need that we have as the church. It's overwhelming, the need that we have to draw together in unity in you, in your love for us. And so what I ask, Lord, is that I can't, I can't speak for every church or every expression of your community in this world, but I can speak for us. 
And I can pray on our behalf and I ask you to begin chipping that away. Chip away those things that formed around us like barnacles, like foreign intrusions that came and shaped us a different way. Chip those things away. And as we yield to you, draw us closer into your love. Help us find security in your love for us so that we don't live in fear. That we can stand with full confidence knowing that you love us, that you have our best interests at heart. And we can take the risk of loving others who seem different from us. Help us, Lord Jesus. Whether this is accomplished in our lifetime, I don't know, but help us to be part of any movement that unifies and draws your people together. Help us to be a representation of a healthy church. And I pray that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Give 
that you do is great and the things that you're doing in this world are great and you've called us to join in with you to be a part of it so challenge our hearts to join together and be part of this great thing you're doing we pray that lord in jesus name amen amen all right well uh we're going to speak this blessing on each other. Uh, if you have need of prayer for anything, come on up and we'll pray about it. We'll see what God will do. Uh, don't forget that Mel is in need of help tomorrow morning. So he's back in the back there. He may be walking up here to the front though, right? Or not. Depends on if he feels like praying for you or not. But <laughs> maybe he'll listen to what we talked about today. <laughs> so, uh, so let's uh, speak this blessing over each other. Uh, may Christ be a light to illumine and guide you. Christ be a shield to overshadow you. Christ be under you. Christ be over you. Christ beside you on your left and on your right, both in this world and the one to come. Go in peace, you children of God. Mm-hmm.